0: But hey, this morning we're talking about leadership. And I had this whole opening I was going to do, but I just want to share something, uh, just that I observed this on my heart as we get back into Deuteronomy. Uh, my wife and I had the privilege yesterday of just breaking some bread, uh, sharing a meal with four or five local pastors right in this area and their wives. And, and one of the things that rang through our conversation that was common was the burden that spiritual leadership comes, wa- comes with. And, and I'm not talking about like the stuff and the responsibilities, but I'm talking about the pastoral Burden for our people and for them to, to get who God is. Now, you understand leadership burden if you're a parent or a grandparent. There are things you desire for your kids, things you hope that they avoid pitfalls and mistakes that you made. If you're a business leader, if you're a supervisor, or you own a company, you, know, you have the vision for the product or service. And there are things you just desire your people to get as you deploy them with their area of expertise. Certainly, if you're in the military, and you're in a leadership position. There's a sense of the mission that you know more than those that you're leading and you desire for them to really kind of grasp as they work together with you to accomplish the mission. But there's another layer to it when it's spiritual leadership. And this applies to uh, even Sunday school teachers working with young kids, right? Because there's an an eternal component to spiritual leadership. So as we dive back into Deuteronomy this week, we'll be in Deuteronomy for six weeks and we'll conclude the book we're really kind of moving to that part in, uh, in Deuteronomy where Moses is, is writing a succession narrative. He actually probably spoke this first, but because Moses is getting ready to hand over the leadership of the nation to Joshua. And there's something that Moses knows for his people that he passionately makes clear in the passage that we're in today. And it's this, it's that the life that they desire and God's best life for them is, comes through obedience to him. And that by turning their backs on him or choosing to disobey him, it will result in absolute tragedy. And so we come to this chapter in the scripture. We're going to focus primarily on chapter 28, the blessings and curses of Moses. And I will tell you, it is a profound chapter in the scripture and in the Old Testament that teaches us heavily about the nature and character of God. And as, how, how he wants to relate uh, to his people. Well, there's a similar burden, as I shared that I heard echoed through the conversation yesterday. And it's that you would understand, each one of us, that the life even that you desire really comes through faith in Jesus Christ and walking with God. That's That's why we do what we do. That's what we desire that you would know. And we'll see that, I believe, clearly as we look past Moses to the Lord Jesus Christ as we get into our message this morning. Now, I wanna just give us a little bit more background. It's been a while since we've been in Deuteronomy. And this is the latter six chapters or six weeks on this part of the book. But let's first and foremost remember that Deuteronomy is a story. It's a narrative. It's a story of a God who loved a particular people. Some of your versions of the Bible say a peculiar people. Called them into a relationship with himself for a myriad of purposes. But really the primary purpose was that God might display and reveal who he is and how he relates to humanity through this group of people. That was his heart in calling them. But Deuteronomy is not just a story, it's also a treaty. And we talked about this about 18 months ago, that scholars for centuries didn't quite know how to outline the book of Deuteronomy. And then they found through archaeology all of these, uh, what they call Near Eastern Vassal Treaties, these treaties between lords and their subjects. And lo and behold, Deuteronomy sort of conformed to this format it would be akin to something like this today. If they were to dig up the the writings of Christian leaders today or discover them a thousand years from now, they might say something like this. To really understand what's written here, you have to understand that this was in the form of a literary form of the 21st century called a blog, and here's how it was written, right? Or it's only 240 characters because that was a tweet, which was like a a way that things were written in the 21st century. It's the same kind of idea. When, When archaeologists, scientists, and biblical scholars came to understand the pattern of the Near Eastern Treaty, all of a sudden they understood Deuteronomy more. And that's really important for a chapter that, as you'll see, has a whole lot of vividly pronounced curses in it. So really quickly, the preamble of the treaty is essentially here's who involve, is involved in making this agreement what's, and what their relationship is with each other. The historical prologue is kind of where they've been together and, and how they got to where they are today. And then the covenant stipulations, at least in the case of Deuteronomy, form the largest part of the body of Deuteronomy. What are the things that, that uh, uh, need to be committed to for these two parties to enter into this treaty, into this relationship? And where we find ourselves today are the details of ratification. We used the term renewal last week. Here's what will happen if you honor the covenant. Here's what will happen if you dishonor the covenant. That's where we find ourselves this morning. So we're excited to to jump into this passage today. And uh, as we do so, I'm gonna open us with a word of prayer. Our God and Father, we thank you for this passage of scripture. Lord, it's challenging but we know that it speaks much of who you are. And Lord, we would ask that your Holy Spirit again would be our guide and our instructor and that there would be something for each one of us to take into our lives here in the 21st century and apply and learn from as we study your word. Lord, we submit ourselves to the authority of the word of God today and the leading of your Holy Spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we have this scene in Deuteronomy we looked at last week. I'll just sort of gloss chapter 27 so we can spend most of our time in 28. But God's people, if you were with us last week, they are on the edge of the promised land. They're about to go in, but they haven't yet yet. They haven't received the inheritance yet, they're about there, and these chapters are instructions for what they are to do at the time at which they do inherit and and take possession of the promised land. So among other things, uh, they're to go up on Mount Ebal, write God's word on white stones, build an altar, uh, prepare and offer sacrifices, celebrate God's goodness... But from there, they're to divide as a people into uh, two groups of six tribes of Israel each and half of them are to go up on Mount Ebal and half of them are to go up on Mount Gerizim and in this solemn, formal ceremony, ratify the covenant, recommit to it by pronouncing the blessings and the cursings. And much more we could say about the echoes of that in the Old Testament, but suffice it to say that blessing and cursing is a pattern that, that exists in, in goes all the way through scripture, Genesis to Revelation. It begins in, in Genesis 1 through 3, when God, through his creation, blesses immensely. And in almost immediately, mankind rebels, and there are curses that follow. It continues into the lives of the patriarchs. Principally, the life of Jacob is consumed with blessings and curses. It comes to this period in Israel's history. It's repeated again in the time of the prophets, and even Jesus, through the, through the Sermon on the Mount, as he comes and begins to teach, there's the themes of blesses, blessings and cursings and goes all the way to the book of Revelation that many of you will be studying over the next several months. That those whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life will receive the very blessings of God Almighty and eternal blessings. Yet those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life will receive eternal damnation, condemnation, curse, and so this is a theme that is replete throughout Scripture. And so it's, it's fair to ask this morning, uh, what is the context in which we're looking at, at Israel's history for these blessings and cursings? So I want to get right into the text, and we'll, and we'll talk about that. Deuteronomy 28, beginning in verse 1. Now, if you faithfully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all His commands I am giving you today, the Lord your God will put you far above all the nations on the earth, All of these blessings will come, and note the language here, overtake you because you obey the Lord your God. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. Your offspring will be blessed and your land's produce and the offspring of your livestock, including the young of your herds and the newborn of your flocks. Your basket and kneading bowl will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. The Lord will cause the enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They will march out against you from one direction but flee from you in seven directions. The Lord will grant you a blessing on your barns and on everything you do. He will bless you in the the land the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as his holy people as he swore to you if you obey the commands of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. Then all the peoples of the earth will see that you bear the Lord's name and they will stand in awe of you. The Lord will make you prosper abundantly with offspring, the offspring of your livestock, the land's produce in the land the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open for you his abundant storehouse, the sky to give your land rain in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. You will lend to many nations, but you will not borrow. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You will not only move upward and never downward if you listen to the Lord, your God's commands I'm giving you today and are careful to follow them. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left from all the things I'm commanding you today and do not follow other gods to worship them. These are the blessings uh, of the, the covenant uh, treaty that God's people are making with him. A couple things to note here. Number one, The physical blessings promised to uh, to Israel in the book of Deuteronomy at this time in their history do not apply to the church directly today. In other words, these were blessings to do with this specific covenant agreement with God's people at this particular time. These are not blessings to the church today. Now, you will hear some prosperity preachers will, will apply these scriptures that if you have enough faith, that God will increase your salary and he will bless, you'll have uh, tons of healthy children. Some of them, people would not see that as a blessing in terms of the, uh, the load, the responsibility that comes with that. And all joking aside, there's this idea that permeates the culture in the, in the prosperity gospel that puts God sort of at our debt. This, these promises are a physical picture of what blessing is. So we're going to define blessing in a minute. But this covenant with God's people is a conditional covenant. Now, not all of God's covenant agreements in the Bible are. The Abrahamic covenant for one, that all people will be blessed through the offspring of Abraham is an unconditional covenant of God. But note how clear the scripture is that this is a conditional covenant. It's the necessity of obedience. And it occurs in the beginning, in the middle, and at the end of this passage. In verse one, if you faithfully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all his commands. Verse nine, the Lord will establish you as his holy people if you obey the commands of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. Verse 13 and 14, if you listen to the Lord God's commands I'm giving you today and are careful to follow them. And he adds, do not turn aside to the right or to the left so a fair question here is if this is a conditional covenant and if these blessings have specifically to do with Israel then why are we studying them today? What is there for us to learn? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 15 verse 4 and 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11, that everything that Israel experienced that is recorded here, every event, every uh, interaction, uh, relational interaction with God is written and recorded for our instruction and for us to learn from. That there are spiritual pictures throughout. And that's why God preserved and ordained that this be part of his holy word. But what is it that we can gain from this? So I think there's a definition and an application amongst probably a host of other things. And so as we're given a picture, a physical picture of God's blessing, and we look at that over the course of Scripture, let's, let's work on a definition for what it means to be blessed. What does it mean to be blessed in Scripture? And, and I stole part of this from another pastor, so just to be uh, to confess there, but I did modify it. It says this very concisely, to be blessed or the blessed life is life with God that results in fullness and abundance. Life with God, that's the first clause. The idea here is is relationship, life with God that results in fullness and abundance. You could substitute the word shalom there, right? Wholeness, completeness, the restorative nature of what God, God wants to do in relationship with his people. And note that in that definition is not included the idea uh, that that means that life is free of trial or hardship or difficulty. That even in the midst of hard times, that God, uh, a blessed life is a life with God that results in fullness and abundance, even in the midst of trial. Some of you could testify to that clearly from the hardships of your own life. That's what blessing is. It's interesting that in prosperity gospel theology, this idea that if I have enough faith, God will bless me physically, there is not a lot of attention paid to the curses that we're going to look at uh, in a few verses from here. But one preacher I was listening to on this passage, he said this, and I think it's true. He said, "All of us have a little prosperity gospel in us as Christians." In other words, we do have this notion, particularly as Westerners, that if I have been faithful to the Lord, or if I trust him enough or have enough faith in him, then I, I, I do kind of put him at my debt and he's got to pay off and I've got to get that promotion or, or God, why didn't this happen? I did this for you. And it begins to permeate our thinking a little bit, at least I'll speak for me. So I've been asking myself these questions about, okay, well, what about the physical blessing of God? These blessings to Israel here may not be blessings to us, but certainly God's blessing does include, at times, physical blessing. Well, to turn that on its head, we're responsible for the blessing that God gives us in the physical realm. And if you are in this room, you've been blessed physically compared to the rest of the world. And there's notion, a notion throughout this passage where all of the blessing with which God blesses Israel is so that it sort of passes through them to other people, if by no other means than being witnessed, that this is the kind of God that, these, that Israel serves. He's a God that if you obey him and follow him, that he provides fullness and abundance. And so the fullness and abundance even of Israel was meant to be shared with the nations. And I think the application there is that God's blessing in my life, even materially, is something that should be passing through my life to the blessing and to be life giving into the lives of others. So, how do I share my home? How do I share my finances? How do I share the many possessions that God has given me? Or do I see God's physical blessings as something to be hoarded, something that's simply for my pleasure and my comfort? And I'll confess there are times that that's where I land if not subconsciously. The other danger, and this becomes clear in Israel's history, is that the abundance and fullness of physical blessing can become to be seen as a false savior. It can come to be relied on. Now, it's interesting that a lot of this application, if you lived in a second or third world context, we'd be making a different application let me give you an illustration to see uh, if we make sense of this. I, I heard from our Haiti team that was down in, we had a very small team in Haiti this week, that they were working on some of the cisterns and uh, getting them back up and running. They hadn't been working. But the water was not drinkable or usable still. And it's interesting that a cistern that is designed to gather water so that it can supply it, particularly in, in uh, climates where they get less rain, so that it can be used by a community, a cistern, can actually turn into something that provides, that becomes toxic and, and dishes out death if it's not used. It is when a cistern is frequently opened and the water is shared and brings life to a community that the cistern itself stay, stays healthy and the water is drinkable and, and brings life and brings health. Our material wealth, the, the blessings of God in our lives, are kind of like that. When shared... When looked at as something I'm to steward and to share with other people, it actually brings and gives life and I become less attached to it and less likely to become an idol. But when I think it's for my comfort and my pleasure and I, it actually replaces, and becomes a false savior, then it actually becomes toxic and it ruins me spiritually. Hopefully that's clear this morning. And uh, just as, as something I've been wrestling with this week and thinking about the fact that, folks, we are a blessed people even just in the physical realm. We're going to get to the spiritual realm in a little bit. But Let's look at the, uh, the covenant curses. So we have this conditional covenant, and we're not going to read all the verses on, the, on curses because there are four times the amount. I encourage you to read the whole chapter later. For the sake of time, I want to read a small section. It's in the beginning of 15. But if you do not obey the Lord your God by carefully following all his commands and statutes I'm giving you today, all these curses will come and overtake you. Note the parallel imagery, sort of opposite and parallel poetry here to the blessings. You will be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and kneading bowl will be cursed. Your offspring will be cursed in your land's produce. The young of both your herds and the newborn of your flocks. You will be cursed when you come in and cursed when you go out. The Lord will send against you curses, confusion, and rebuke in everything you do until you are destroyed and quickly perish. Because of your wickedness, of the wickedness of your actions in abandoning me. The Lord will make pestilence cling to you until he has exterminated you from the land you are entering to possess. The Lord will afflict you with wasting disease, fever, inflammation, burning heat, drought, blight, and mildew. These will pursue you until you perish. The sky above you will be bronze and the earth beneath you iron. The Lord will turn the rain of your land into falling dust. It will descend on you from the sky until you are destroyed." The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will march out against them from one direction, but flee from them in seven directions. You will be an object of horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your corpses will be food for all the birds of the sky and the wild animals of the earth with no one to scare them away. And it goes on and on and on. It's actually four times the amount of curses to blessings. And in fact, in most Near Eastern treaties, similar to Deuteronomy, the curses, the content of the curses in the treaty far outweighed the content of the blessings. Why is that? Well, if you think about it this way, if the blessings were the result of honoring a covenant and the curses of dishonoring, it's this idea that if you honored the covenant, those things would just naturally happen to you and you would walk in this life. But those making the treaty wanted to warn their people, and particularly God here in Deuteronomy, that should you choose to dishonor this covenant agreement, this is the cost. There is a price to pay for willfully choosing to rebel against and dishonor this covenant agreement that you've made. And so we have these five categories of curses, and and it's this downward spiral. It gets worse and worse and worse. And it's so horrible and so tragic. It's almost a physical description of a descent into hell itself here on earth. It begins with defeat and disease. It moves to uh, exile and captivity and all the way down to uh, economic ruin and, and actually the reversal of verse 13 that, that Israel will become the tail of nations rather than the head. And then this, in the fourth category being invaded, conquered, and brutalized by enemies such that starvation becomes so preeminent that the people of God actually eat their children. They resort to cannibalism. It's this vivid, awful description of a descent into covenant curses from disobedience. Now I want to read you part of this passage And as we read this description, this isn't for dramatic effect or something like that. For one, it's in the word of God. And there's something the Lord wants us to hear from it. But note that this actually ends up taking place. And we'll talk about this in a couple of chapters, but God's people don't adhere to the covenant. And it does get this bad. You can read about that in Lamentations chapters 2 and 3. Listen to the description. Verse 53, you will eat the offspring of the flesh of your sons and daughters, the Lord your God has given you. During the siege and hardship, your enemy imposes on you. And listen to how he describes men and women. The most sensitive and refined man among you will look grudgingly to his brother, the wife of he embraces, and the rest of his children, refusing to share with them, any of them, his the children's flesh that he will eat because he has nothing left during the siege and hardship your enemy imposes on you in all your towns. The most sensitive and refined woman among you who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because of her refinement and sensitivity will begrudge the husband she embraces, her son and her daughter, the afterbirth that comes out from between her legs and the children she bears because she will secretly eat them for lack of anything during the siege and hardship your enemy imposes on you within your city gates if you are not careful to obey all the words of this law which are written in this scroll by fearing this glorious and awe-inspiring name, the Lord your God. How can Moses write that last sentence after what he describes of, of a man or a woman actually consuming their offspring in secret of God's people being so starved and so cursed that they reach these kind, this level of decisions. And then how can Moses go if you uh, fearing fearing the, the name of God, the glorious and awe-inspiring name of the Lord your God? How does he land there? Well, some of it comes from our understanding, our definition of what it means to be cursed. And so we're going to attempt to do that now. Remember that this is a physical picture at a particular time in Israel's history that helps us understand what it means to be cursed as we look at the entire scripture. And so here's our definition. Life that exists isolated and apart from God, where God's blessings are actively working in reverse, And I would add to this, life that exists apart from God and is happy to be so, or wants to be in that position where God is not a part of their life, where his blessings are actively working in a verse. Now, if if you're tracking ahead of me a little bit now, you're going, well, wait a minute. Life doesn't always work itself out that way. In fact, David spends an entire psalm going, God, why do the wicked prosper... While the righteous are, are, in some cases, David will write, starving to death and struggling to make ends meet, or as the song goes, only the good die young. How do we harmonize all of that? How do we make sense of it? Well, part of it is that God puts the curses into the law because he's a truthful God. Because he honors his own character and faithfulness. It's actually an act of his grace. We've been saying this through the whole series in Deuteronomy. That he tells us who he is and what is expected of him. But we're going to see that even more clearly in a moment. Aren't we thankful that A, these curses do not apply to the church, but B, that Paul says in Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If this is sort of a physical picture of hell, the reminder that if you are in Christ, if you belong to Jesus, if you have trusted in him by faith, that there is nothing, there is no condemnation. You do not stand condemned by the law of God. You are not under the wrath of God. You've been freed from that. However, Paul says, in first, and we looked at it in Colossians 3 last week, Paul spends this whole chapter going, why are you living as new creations as if you were dead? You've been set free. You're not under the condemnation of the law, yet you're choosing to walk in patterns and live a life as if you're, he's essentially saying you're spiritual zombies. And he challenges God's people in the New Testament. And so there's a reminder to me, and it's something that Paul even exhorts to his young protege, Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely. Doctrine is a word that simply means teaching, the teaching of scripture. Examine your life daily, Paul says elsewhere. In in Philippians, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Yes, Christ has set us free. Yes, Jesus is a friend to sinners, God in the flesh, but he is still God Almighty and to be reverenced and to be awed. In other places, in Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 12, we're reminded to walk before God circumspectly. And so there's an application for us as well. But we still have this question outstanding, right? Not only to do with these curses specifically, but how Moses then ends with this idea of God's glorious and awe-inspiring name. And it, it perhaps is even more vivid in verse 63. So I want to take a time out and just look at verse 63. It says this, just as the Lord was glad to cause you to prosper and multiply you, so he will also be glad to cause you to perish and destroy you. You will be ripped out of the land you are entering to possess. Is God a sadist? Some of your versions will say he rejoices to punish or to destroy or that you would perish. Or in one version, I think it's the CEV says that he is just as happy to destroy you how do we harmonize that with Second Peter where Peter says that the Lord is not willing that any should perish but all should come to repentance well it's important that we apply and understand scripture in its context and in the broader context of scripture interprets scripture the idea here is that God is pleased that his character and and who his word his character his justice is unwavering That he is going to behave with justice. His standard is not going to be lowered. He is being consistent and faithful as is his word. No matter what we're doing, because we're all over the place. And so whether his people disobey or obey, the standard is the same and he will be absolutely just. And that's something that we can actually fall back on as a foundation and a strength. It's why the Psalms use the words of refuge and strong tower and so on and so forth, because this God is unwavering and consistent and faithful to to himself. But there's more than that. Paul says, or Moses says, fearing his glorious and awe-inspiring name. Then he used the biblical covenant name for God, Jehovah Elohim, What's at stake ultimately is that the most important thing is the glory of God's name itself. It's layered into everything we've looked at, that our lives, that a blessed life, a life that with God that uh, results in fullness and abundance is a life that all, ultimately that fullness and abundance points back and gives glory to God. It's a life that exalts and glorifies the name of God himself. And God is so concerned primarily about himself and his name and his character and his faithfulness and that of his word that it stands out prominently in this text and so God's curses evidence that but you know we're studying Deuteronomy we're in this passage and we're almost done with Deuteronomy and yet we stand on the other side. We have the whole, you know, we have the whole canon of scripture. We have the New Testament. We we've, we've see Jesus go to the cross. We see the resurrection. So it's okay to could look ahead. There's some foreshadowing and some sort of echoing into the future, I believe, in what Moses is saying here. When he uses the word happy or rejoice, and you can almost tell the translators don't know what word to use here. Happy to, to crush you. Happy to destroy you. Happy that you would perish just as much as happy if you were blessed. And I believe it points us forward to the time of the prophets when Isaiah says this about the Lord Jesus Christ, yet it pleased the Lord to crush him severely, to make him a guilt offering. You see, God was pleased in Deuteronomy 28 because he's being consistent to his character and his word, but it doesn't stay there. It ultimately points us forward to Jesus. When Jesus will stand in for us, you see, the blessings and the curses find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. If you look ahead in Joshua chapter eight, when this all gets fulfilled and the people of Israel actually do all of this, you'll read in Joshua that as the people are on either side, either mountain, pronouncing the blessings of curses and curses, that the priests and the Levites are in the valley with the Ark of the Covenant, the very physical presence of God Almighty in the Old Testament, which is a picture of Christ that according to our definitions this morning of blessing, life with God that results in fullness and abundance or a life apart from God, isolated and empty, stands Jesus. And so as we come to the New Testament, we learn three principles about the law and my obedience to the law and why Jesus came. The first principle is this. I'm like the Israelites. I can't fully obey the law. I'm gonna blow it. Paul wrestles with this in Romans when he says this, he says, for I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is in me, but there's no ability, some of your versions will say, to carry it out. He goes on later and he says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Brings us to point number two. Jesus absorbed all the curses so that I can inherit the blessings. Paul says in Galatians that he became a curse for us. He redeemed us by becoming a curse. And it's through the curse that that is poured out on Jesus, Jesus absorbing the curses, that I then can be a recipient of the very blessings of God, eternal blessings of God. And that's what we see in Ephesians chapter one. We're now talking no more uh, just about physical blessings, but Paul says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has bestowed unto us every spiritual blessing in the heavens, in Christ. I'm not capable of obeying the law, but Christ absorbed the curses that I can inherit the blessings. Last principle is this. Obedience to God today is expressed by faith and trust in Jesus. Paul says in Romans 10, for Christ is the end of the law. The righteousness of God to those who believe that is that Christ is the fulfillment that he fully obeyed the law he brought the law to its conclusion and its conclusion was he himself and it is by belief that we become righteous Ephesians 3 in him and through him through faith in him we may ha- we may approach God God Almighty with freedom and confidence So we're kind of back where we landed last week. Last week, we said recommitment renewal equals surrender. We're back at the place of surrender. But surrender, how do you do surrender? Surrender is reaching an end of myself and saying, I can't, I'm not capable of of obeying the law. But praise God that Jesus absorbed the curses, that as I place my faith and trust in him, I receive the blessings of God Almighty. Uh, One pastor I was listening to on this passage, he had the most succinct definition of blessed. He said, the blessed life is to behold Christ. Not just to see him in some sort of like to imagine him mentally, but to behold him in my life and heart, to cling to him in every trial and joy of life. The blessed life is to behold Christ. And so Jesus, near the end of John's gospel in defining what life is, he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ, the one you have sent. Moses knows for his people that disobedience will result in absolute tragedy. And the life that God is calling Israel to comes through obedience. What we desire for you to know today as we apply and learn from this passage is that real life, eternal life, Abundant life. in this life and the next comes through faith in Jesus walking with God. A life filled with fullness and abundance. Pray with me. Father, we, um, God, we're marveled by your word and how, God, I thank you that you're truthful, that you tell us the truth and that the truth always points us back to Jesus. I thank you that you crushed Christ on the cross that we might inherit the very blessings of eternity even he himself Jesus thank you for your willing offering and sacrifice of yourself it is in you alone Jesus that we ultimately find our hope in a life of fullness and abundance we give you the praise we give you the glory we thank you for this sacred time unpacking your word would you receive the worship of our mouths now, in Jesus' name, amen.